We are walking our way very slowly through the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. Yes, Tim Roberts, very slowly. Uh, Before we uh, reach cruising speed uh, on the first Sunday of January, where we'll zip through the rest of the entire Gospel. But the reason for the very slow pace is that the opening uh, paragraphs of John's Gospel are widely recognised as a prelude. And like a good musical prelude, they hint at the big themes that resound uh, through the Gospel. So when you get your head around these opening paragraphs, as we've been trying to do over these first few weeks, you really get your head around the whole Gospel. They're certainly the keys that will unlock the whole thing. So just by way of uh, recapping, uh, to do it in reverse order, uh, last week, week three, we looked at the previous paragraph to the one just read to us, verses 9 to 13, and we saw that uh, this is going to be a story of rejection and acceptance. Uh, The text says in verse 11 that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own people and they would reject him. And of course, we're going to see a story of rejection as we read John's Gospel. But then it also says in verse 12 that many will receive him, many others, and they become children of God. And of course, that's also what we're going to see in John's Gospel, but it's also what we see today. We live in a story of rejection and of acceptance. And being a Christian is a decision to live inside that kind of story. Uh, Then two weeks ago, we looked at the previous paragraph, verses 6 to 8, and we just explored the two Johns of John's Gospel. The author John, uh, the son of Zebedee, the apostle John, an eyewitness to the events that are recounted here, and also uh, John the Baptist, mentioned in verse 6 as the great witness to the light. Um, We know from non-Christian texts of the period that John was the biggest thing going in first century religion prior to Jesus. And we're going to have to think about John the Baptist again today because he pops up in the reading that we just had. Three weeks ago was week one. This is where we launched out in the opening paragraph and we pondered what really is the dominant thing of the whole of John's Gospel. John opens up with his big theme that we can know the source of all reality in Jesus. The source of all reality in Jesus. Those opening lines smack you between the eyes. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And I tried to point out uh, in that first week that this speaks to the most basic longings of Jews and pagans, that is Greeks and Romans. So uh, Jews believed that it was God's Word that created all things. There's that famous passage in the opening line of the whole Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, he spoke words, let there be light, and there was light. It's very Jewish theology to say the word of the Lord created all things. But this also has a happy connection with the best of Greek and Roman thought. The most sophisticated Greeks and Romans of the ancient world believed, uh, like Cleanthes believed, the great uh, poet-philosopher, that behind all of reality was the logos. This was the Greek word that they used. So, for instance, uh, Cleanthes wrote, the universal word of reason, simply the Greek logos, moves through all creation. In all things, one everlasting word, logos, reigns. 
The Logos for ancient Greeks was the mysterious operating system. Why is everything so ordered? Why do the planets move like that? Why the seasons? Why is there orderliness built into the fabric of creation? There must be a rationale, and they called that the Logos. And by opening his gospel with a reference to the Logos, who turns out to be Jesus, John makes clear that his gospel is more than a biography. It is the story of the incarnation of the Logos. It is the entry of God into the world so that we might know him. And this becomes the key theme of the uh, climactic lines of the prelude, which we're looking at today, verses 14 uh, to 18, beginning at verse 14 with this notion of the incarnation. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word or logos didn't just appear in a dream or an apparition. No, what did the word do? The word became, say it, flesh. There's something confronting even about the English word, but the Greek word used here, sarx, sarx, is very confronting for ancient hearers of the gospel. If you know a little Greek, you know that the Greeks thought of the human being in this multifaceted way, and it's important to see how the word sarx functioned. So the pneuma, or spirit, referred to the spiritual aspect of being human. The sulkos, or soul, from which we get psychological, uh, refers to the mental or psychological dimension. Then there's the soma, or the body, which just refers to the total package, the mind-body package of being human. But sarx, or flesh, referred to the temporal, material component of our existence. So if pneuma, spirit, is what connects us to the divine as human beings, sarx is what grounds us to the earth. Now think about this. John says the Logos didn't just become spirit or soul or even body, but flesh. Flesh. Of course, this is where we get our word incarnation. We get the doctrine incarnation, but the English word incarnation, because it comes from the Latin version of all this. Incarne just means in flesh, and the infleshation is this idea that the Logos became flesh. This is very confronting to ancient readers because Greeks and Romans had such a low view of creation, something we've talked about uh, many times before, that it would have been very difficult for them to imagine that absolute divinity could somehow touch flesh, let alone become flesh. And this was, we know, such a big problem in the early church, convincing people that God Almighty had taken on flesh, that that there there were splinter groups within the church that tried to rearrange this doctrine. There were some little uh, offshoots, uh, here are two of them. Uh, The Gnostics, from the Greek word knowledge, uh, insisted that the whole point of Jesus was to deliver our spirit from this fleshy world, and they went so far as to say that the God who created flesh was a lesser deity from which we need rescuing. They believed in multiple deities. The God of creation of the Old Testament was the lowest of the deities. 
And they called themselves Christians. And then there were the Docetists, from the Greek word to seem or to appear. They didn't go as far as the Gnostics, but they did say God could not possibly have actually become flesh. So he must have just seemed, appeared to be flesh. These Christians were just trying to make it sound better to Greek ears. (laughs) But the early church said, "Mm -mm, we're, we're going with the text. And the text says, the word became sucks flesh christianity teaches without compromise the incarnation of god almighty now some of john's jewish readers will have had a very different problem with this notion of the incarnation greeks had a particular problem but uh, jews wouldn't have had the flesh problem because jews taught that all creation was good so they had no problem with flesh per se their difficulty with the incarnation, was what it might say about the majesty of God, the otherness of God. The incarnation threatened the pure glory of God by saying that at any point in time, he had weakness, he had flesh, he had a body. It threatens the honor of God. Uh, There's a thing called the 13 principles of Judaism. I must have mentioned them before. It's like a medieval Jewish apostles' creed. Okay, Uh, Moses Maimonides invented them. They're 13 I believes. And number three is directed against the Christian doctrine of the incarnation. It goes like this, and this is still valid for Orthodox Jews today. Number three, I believe with perfect faith that God does not have a body. (laughs) It's like, we're talking about you, Christians. Physical concepts do not apply to him. There is nothing whatsoever that resembles him at all. Our Muslim neighbors have a similar problem with the incarnation. They say it threatens the glory of God. What kind of God do you believe in that he could actually become flesh? The Quran does not mince words. They do blaspheme, section 5 says, who say God is Christ the son of Mary. I'm sorry, that's you guys. If they do not desist from their word of blasphemy, verily, grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers. Christ the son of Mary was no more than an apostle. His mother was a woman of truth. They both had to eat their daily food. And that's the knockdown argument. The fact that Jesus had to eat food and is actually in the gospel said to eat food is proof that there's no incarnation because God could never, the glorious, majestic God, could never find himself in the inglorious position of being hungry and needing food. (laughs) But of course, that's not the half of where the Christians go with this idea. God becoming flesh is just the beginning. They go right to the point of saying, not only did he take on flesh, there was a time when he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet like he was the household slave. It's John 13 that has this amazing scene where Jesus washes uh, the disciples' feet. And of course, Peter, being a good Jewish theologian, says, no way are you touching my feet, Lord. It's a scandal of your honour. And if you know the scene, uh, Jesus says, well, frankly, Peter, if you don't let me serve you in this way, you have no part of me. And of course, this just prefigures what would happen the next day. Jesus would be crucified, give his life as an atonement for sins. I mean, the incarnation is full on. It is a challenge to the absolute glory and honor of God, the incarnation precisely says not only did God take on flesh, but he served and suffered in the flesh because he loves us. 
He loves us. Uh, I'm afraid there's a further challenge to first century uh, Jewish theology here in verse 14, because Jesus is actually put forward as the new temple. Well, actually, that's not the right way to put it, as the thing the temple always pointed forward to. Uh, you, when you read verse 14, you may not have instantly spotted what ancient Jews will have spotted. John is saying Jesus is the temple. So the word became flesh, okay, we've got that, but then look what it says. And made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, if you grew up in a Jewish household listening to the Old Testament over and over again, you knew that these two words, dwelling and glory, were very frequent words used of the tabernacle, the original temple. Um, dwelling, skener, uh, was the term used dozens and dozens of times for the original temple. Here it is. Uh, here's an Old Testament passage for you. Uh, there, one of many. Here's Exodus 40, though. Then the cloud covered the skener. Exactly the same word John uses here for Jesus skenered amongst us. The tent of meeting, the skener. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, skener. Moses could not enter the skener, the, temp- temple, uh, the tent of meeting, the, the dwelling place, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the skener. This is a word Jews instantly thought of as the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle or temple. But you also notice the other words associated with this. Glory. Twice you get that glory of the Lord filled the skenair. Glory of the Lord filled the skenair. And then you read John's gospel and you see that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's what it's saying. And we have seen his glory They all knew what this meant. Jesus is the new temple. And John, in setting this up in verse 14, is preluding to a theme that becomes central to his gospel, namely that Jesus is the temple. And here's the scene that we'll get to in a few weeks, John chapter 2, where Jesus drove out from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables because these priestly sellers were corrupting things. And then the Jews, this is the Jewish authorities, uh, responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this to the temple? And look what Jesus says. Well, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. To which John adds the little editorial, the temple he had spoken of was his body. It couldn't be clearer. The Word became flesh and tabernacle amongst us, and one chapter later we find that Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple, the true place of God's presence, the true place of atonement for sins, which was the other chief function of the ancient temple. And frankly, it should give everyone pause, especially our Jewish neighbors, that within one generation of Jesus saying this, That temple would no longer be there. Destroyed in AD 70, never to be rebuilt again. Even according to Jewish theology, from within a generation of Jesus, there was no presence of God on earth. There was no place of atonement. And the Christians just said, this is because our master is the skenair, the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the temple. 
No wonder John then describes Jesus as the fullness of grace and truth in verse 14. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, look at that expression, full of two things, grace and truth. And this is so important, John repeats it in verse 17. Glance down at verse 17, these two words appear again. For the law was given through Moses, what came through Jesus? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what do these two words mean? A truth here, I'm pretty sure, just emphasizes the way Jesus is the fulfillment or underlying reality of the Old Testament. Everything the Old Testament promised came true in Jesus. He is the underlying reality of it all. So the temple or tabernacle in the Old Testament was always a symbol of God's presence, but Jesus was the thing that fulfilled it. He is the true thing of which the tabernacle and the temple were pointers, signposts. Uh, The sacrificial system in the temple taught that forgiveness of sins could only come through atoning sacrifice. But that was always a pointer to the true thing that Jesus would do on the cross, dying for our sins, making atonement for sins. The truth was in Jesus. Uh, This is why it's also grace as well as truth. It isn't just truth that Jesus came in fullness with. It is grace. You notice that? He came full of grace and truth. Um, The underlying reality of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, contrary to rumor, is grace, not works. You often get this sense that the Old Testament's all that bad, mean stuff, and, you know, thank God Jesus came. Thank God for the New Testament. But actually, God was always promising His presence and His forgiveness in the Old Testament. And and the, the important thing is, John, the author of this gospel, isn't for a second... Not for a second, contrasting the meanness and error of the Old Testament with the grace and truth of Jesus. No way. He's saying Jesus is the fullness of the grace and truth that was already there in the Old Testament. And he underlines it in verses 16 and 17. Out of his fullness, out of Jesus' fullness, look at the language here. We have all received Grace in place of the grace already given. Huh. What does that mean? Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses as a grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the truth toward which the Old Testament always pointed came in Jesus Christ. This is crucial to understand. John doesn't think Jesus came to wipe out the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. He's the climax. He's the underlying truth. And what is the underlying truth of the Old Testament? Grace. If I'm put it like this, the Old Testament was the footprint. Jesus turns out to be the figure making the footprint. Uh, the Old Testament is the shadow. Jesus turns out to be the object casting the shadow, or perhaps even better, the light casting the shadow. And I think this is why there's that parenthetical reference in verse 15 to John the Baptist again. And you might look at that and go, what on earth is that doing there? I mean, it is in parentheses after all, verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That can be quite complicated. You just read it slowly. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Hmm. 
But of course, John the Baptist is the pivot point between the Old and New Testament, between God's old covenant promises to Israel and God's new covenant promises to all the nations. And John's central message was, the one who comes after me is surpassing me because he was before me. In what sense? He's saying, all that was before me comes to its climax in Jesus. All that the Old Testament promised and taught comes to fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the truth of which the Old Testament points, toward which the Old Testament points. He is the grace which is already hinted in the Old Testament. John stands at the crossroads of time and says, that one there surpasses everything because he was before me. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And with that, the prelude ends in verse 18 by returning to the central theme of the Gospel of John, God unveiled. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now the words, no one has ever seen God, are good Jewish theology. I could quote many Old Testament passages that say, no one can see God, no one's allowed to see God, no one can see God. But I think given the reference to Moses in verse 17, we're probably meant to think of a specific passage in the book of Exodus where Moses wanted to see God and God said, no. Not even Moses was allowed to see God. Exodus 33 And Moses said, well, this is our Old Testament passage, right? Moses said, now show me your glory. Ah, glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The central figure of the Old Testament was not allowed to see God. But here's the thing. The apostles saw God in Jesus Christ. And in a sense, we all see God when we read the life of Jesus left by the apostles in their Gospels. The central and most extraordinary claim in the Gospel is that Jesus is incarnate, in flesh, God. Seeing him is seeing God. And it's a point made explicit in John 14, which we'll get to many weeks from now. In fact, this is scheduled uh, for my last sermon as rector. I'm really looking forward, not to that last Sunday as rector, but to this preaching this passage, because in some ways it's the climax of John's gospel. Philip, a good Jew, says... Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Asking what he knows, Moses was not even allowed to have. Show us God. 
Don't you know me, Philip? Jesus said. Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me, and that word seen, exactly the same word used back here in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus isn't just the climax of the promises to Israel, the promise of the temple, the promise of the law, the promise of forgiveness of sins. No, he is God unveiled for the whole world. Every culture about which we know anything significant has longed to know the source of reality. Greeks and Romans, just as much as Jews, asked, we can see the house, but who is the architect? We can calculate the mathematics of the world, but who's the mathematician? We can hear the beautiful tune of the universe, but who's the maestro playing it? We can even read the book of nature, but who is the logos? To which the gospel says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. In him, we have the presence of God, we have the forgiveness of God, we see God in his grace and truth. So, Father, will you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, that in Jesus Christ we see God. Every conversation, every action, especially on his knees washing feet, on the cross dying for sins, raised to life with wounds for all to see. Lord, we see your love, your word. We see you. Help us, Lord, to see this above everything else in our complicated lives. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.